Welcome to the panel on RNZ National. Kia ora, I'm Susanna Leiatawa, and for Wallace Chapman today, and for the rest of the week, in fact, our panellists today, Nikki Bazant and Nick Leggett. And let's start with some response to your I've Been Thinkings. Nikki, yes, I'll celebrate Valentine's Day. This is from John. I'll raise a glass to my wife of 54 years as she dwells in dementia care. Thank you, John, for letting mm, us know and beautiful. sharing that. Yeah. Ironically, this is from Linda in Hawke's Bay. Ironically, Valentine's Day coincides with the first anniversary of Cyclone Gabriel. So many people are feeling emotional mm. about that date for another reason. Mm, absolutely. That's Thank a you, really Linda. good point. Yeah. yeah. And meanwhile, in response to you, Nick, Brian of Ngamotu says, natural disasters, think of Topo and the rest of the rhyolite zone. Yes. <laughs> go on then. I know I'm going to have to go and Google that after the show, and just so I can get clear on that, Brian. Thank you. Uh, reflecting, reflecting. I have been anyway on Waitangi. I know I'm not alone. Waitangi 2024. How did you spend Waitangi Day? Record numbers attending Waitangi this year. I can attest to that. Forty thousand people yesterday alone. I was one of them. And Te Kini Tanga says the overwhelming connection reignited among iwi, hapu, and Fano on display at Waitangi is not a gift to be wasted. Meanwhile, the ACT Party has today launched a public information campaign on its Treaty Principles Bill in an effort to ward off what it calls false claims from the opposition. Faumuina Felolini Maria Tafunai was at Waitangi this weekend. She's founded an organisation that helps businesses, communities, community organisations, individuals become better treaty partners is one of the many things that that organisation does. Tēnā koe Faumuina. Tēnā Susanna. I know that I have summarised uh, your organisation in a very brief way, but I wanted to bring it very much into a focus on Te Tiriti or Waitangi, if we can. Let's start with your experience at Waitangi this weekend. I have to say it was overwhelming, actually. I think it's my first time at Waitangi, uh, for Waitangi Day, and the spirit that I saw there of Kotahitanga of um, just whānau, you know, like children in prams, that sort of thing, people taking their kids and they're all sitting there in in a real kind of learning spaces as well. And I found that really uplifting. I think that many found it uplifting. Of of course, there was challenging corridor um, with the government. And and, and I think that's as it should be because we know that so much of Tūtiriti has not been honoured and, and fully realised yet and so there's that holding to account um, space as well. Part of your time at Waitangi was on Monday where you were one of the panellists invited, the heading of the panel Tangata Tiriti. What can you share with us about that panel and its focus? So the focus was that and um, I think it was unusual for Tangata Tiriti to be given a space and so you know, really thankful for Māori for clearing that for us. Um, broadly, we were talking about the past and the present and the future of uh, the treaty training movement, if you like. Um, so discussing where it come from in the 1960s and the, the support and learning that had happened there, but also the you know the hundreds of thousands of people who have been educated. Um, through those trainings and how, I guess, moving, you know, like to move with the times, what's happening now, 
and there's more than, from what I can gauge, you know, sort of more than 40 organisations doing this work. So I could see that actually on any given day in Aotearoa, there's likely to be a treaty training workshop. Um, and so this has been done by stealth, and I think the future is where we start to see that emerge and we start to see more visibility and more unity in these groups that have been doing this work. Thinking about your time at Waitangi yesterday, the day before, what can you tell us about Tauiwi, non-Māori people in New Zealand at Waitangi this year? What have you been hearing? Um, firstly, lots of welcome remarks. Um, you know, Hone and Hilda Harawera remarking that it was so great to see that representation of Tauiwi, you know, meaning non-Māori, come to support and also Tauiwi I think linking arms together and finding a way to work you know together in in this common cause as well and I think that's why we're starting to see um, more unity and allowing for difference I think that's a key thing um, within the movement so this Tauiwi starting to name themselves separately as two um, and I think you know, there's the Asians supporting Tenorunga Teratanga. Um, I saw people with Pacifica t-shirts and, of course, you know, um, uh, we saw Tongan and, and the Tongan Tawala, Samoans in traditional dress. Um, and I think, and, you know, signs with Pakiha supporting Tangata Whenua. So we're starting to see those groups. And that's, I think, key to Aotearoa, realising how multicultural we still can be in this country and that, that Te Tiriti has a place for all of us. Nikki Bazant, let's come to you. How did you spend Waitangi Day? Oh, I'm embarrassed to say I was actually working a bit. I had a deadline that I was that I was working to. But I, I was following the the happenings at Waitangi. I grew up actually in the north, or partly in the north, and I've always loved that those grounds there at Waitangi. I've never been to Waitangi Day, and every time I see the celebrations, I think I've got to go. I've got to go next year. And this year it just felt, to me, observing from afar, more important than ever. And really, um, I felt a sense of joyfulness, actually. And, and that's, it seems to be reflecting in what you're saying, too, that there was a real sense of, of unity and uh, the meaning of what, what the gathering means. And so, yeah, it, it's made me reflect. I mean, I've been reflecting for a while as this conversation's been going on that there there must be a lot of people, a lot of Pākehā tōiwi like me, who stand with Māori but who kind of don't know how to express that. And I suspect it's a majority, actually, of, of tōiwi. And I, I think um, what you're raising here, Whamuina, is actually the, a way for us to do that. I think that's wonderful. Nick Leggett, you're a person of organisational experience. <laughs> what are your thoughts? And I'm th- and I'm meaning that quite intentionally in terms of treaty training, as Palmoinar's mm. referenced before, and businesses that are recognised or want to be recognised as good treaty partners. Yes, what resonates for you? Oh well, I love. Uh, I really like the Tauiwi Tautoko, um work that's going on, and that and and training. I think that's uh, like our sense of nationhood it's an evolving picture there's no kind of destination we keep we keep growing and 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 building understanding um yesterday we went down to the festival festival of the elements in Porirua which I think is the largest uh 
community event outside Waitangi, um, and it's been going for about 30 years, and that uh, was great, uh, great um, event for just bringing people together, lots of performance, Ngāti Tōa Rangatira leading the, the sort of the, the festivities and, and uh, it was a, once again very powerful and, and, and a particularly large event this year which I thought was interesting um, and some of us were commenting that, that perhaps there was a, a meaning that so many people had really made the effort to come out and engage on Waitangi Day um, and then I think about, you're right, I mean as a as a as a country, we are finding our feet, and I think as a Pakia, that is something that you don't often know. And I, I really want to endorse what Nikki said there. You don't quite know where to go. You don't quite know necessarily where your place is. But I think thanks to the work of Farmuina and the team um, providing. Uh, that understanding and that space is is critical because we are going through some pain at the moment, but it doesn't you know it doesn 't necessarily have to be negative like there 's growth after pain, and I just think the ability to have debate and discussion and to to, to most importantly listen is what 's going to sort of pull us forward here and um i'm i 'm still optimistic I, I think that as a country. Um, having a day where we can talk and understand and grow uh, is the way we, you know, it's the way we improve. So, yeah, um, congratulations on on your work, and I'm I'm keen personally to learn a bit more about what you do. Farmwina, I also want to pick up on that. Now you've returned home. You're based in Ototahi Christchurch. What are the next moves? As you mentioned, and I'm, please just remind me the number of organisations that are around the country focused on Te Tiriti or Waitangi and education around it. What was that number that you mentioned at the beginning? Um, yeah, so I'd estimate at least um, more than 40. Last year um, I called an online um, hui for leads of um, treaty training organisations and we had 30 uh, turn up to that online hui um, and that was to form a unified strategy to bring all the lessons um, that we know and also to share um, sort of capability across um, the I guess uh, the organisations um, some are quite young some the new emerging ones are also um, uh, Pacifica like I said you know Asian and we're seeing that diversity represented as well and I think what and what the big um, what you know, you're talking about there was and Nick is, is so um, true is like how do we make this visible and accessible for people who do want to find out? And so I think that's going to be definitely my mission the next 12 months is setting up some of those um, vehicles so people can just really just go to one place, find out what's happening in their neighbourhood you know, um, access those resources or, you know, sign up for a training. Because if we're going to talk the re- about the referendum, we want to do it from an informed place. We want to know our history. I think knowing our history and owning it, and sometimes, yes, there'll be pain, and hopefully there's going to be also lots of kindness. And at the end of it, the joy and celebration of who we are as a nation that can move forward but not moving forward by ignoring the past. Thank you so much. Mm. I think that's a really mm. great Excellent. note just to just to close on for this afternoon. Really appreciate your time today, Farmwina. Thank you. Thank you so much. Love lover. Marlo Sifua.
RNZ National, this is the panel, it's 20 minutes past four. On the panel with me today, Nikki Bazant and Nick Leggett. Unemployment, it's risen slightly in the three months that ended December. Stats NZ says unemployment rose to 4.0%, up from 3.9% in the previous quarter. The rate is the highest since mid-2021, but was lower than market expectations. Joining us now to explain the numbers is Infometrics Chief Forecaster, Gareth Kennan. Kia ora, Gareth. Good afternoon. Thanks so much for joining us. Now, how do you interpret this latest figure for unemployment, 4.0% in New Zealand? Yeah, look, there were signs that the uh, labour market is continuing the trend of easing that we'd seen over the previous six months or so. Um, and it's not because people are losing their jobs. We still had job growth of uh, four, 0.4% over the quarter, but that's not keeping pace with the very strong population growth and growth in the number of workers that we've had with net migration, of course, pushing up to around about 130,000 over the last year. And so all those people have been coming in to fill roles that have remained vacant and, and businesses have been struggling to fill when the borders were shut uh, during the COVID pandemic. Um, but the key, I guess, is even though the labour market is easing, it was not as much as, of an easing as, as financial markets had expected, not as much as the Reserve Bank had expected as well. So there's just been a little bit of chatter out today uh, around the market about, well, does it raise the, the chances of another uh, official cash rate rise later this month or potentially push out any sorts of cuts um, into later this year uh, compared to what we've previously been expecting? And what do you think? What's your take yeah, on whether or not, not the OCR will looking change? Looking at a uh, likely rate rise uh, this year, uh, we, we think the Reserve Bank has done enough, but we do see risks around it. I mean, our view has been that the Reserve Bank has just been a little bit backward-looking in terms of some of its policy setting over uh, previous uh, the previous two or three years now, really, where they've been reacting to data. It's maybe three months old, six months old, rather than looking forward in terms of determining whether they've done enough uh, with, their, with their rate rises over previous, um, previous quarters. Um, we are still sticking with our, our forecast of a rate cut um, in, in August, uh, but we will be needing to see, I guess, more of a softening in terms of some of those other indicators around inflation and particularly around labour costs as well uh, to make the Reserve Bank comfortable with that sort of track. Nick, any questions for Gareth? I'm interested to know, Gareth, what this, what what the, the sense of confidence is in the New Zealand economy at the moment and, and what sort of bearing will that have on um, you know, people starting businesses, investing? Uh, you know, do you have a, a sort of a sense of that? Yeah, I think what we've seen over the last maybe three or six months is that confidence numbers have improved, whether it's uh, elements of consumer confidence or business confidence. Now, you have to be a little bit careful with some of those confidence numbers because there is a bit of a bias in there whether you've got a, a national or Labour-led government, particularly on the business side. Uh, but putting that aside, look, I think I think there's a little bit of a feeling out there at the moment amongst uh, particularly businesses that um, with the population growth that we've got, even if you've got fewer customers coming in the door because people are hunkering down and cost of living pressures higher and mortgage rates, all those sort of issues... Because you've got that population growth occurring, you've got more customers coming in the door, which helps to mitigate that sort of downturn or slowdown that might otherwise have been occurring. Now, I think as we work our way through 2024, it becomes clearer that interest rates have peaked to start to see those easing back a bit. 
um, businesses will start to become more confident this is a, a reasonably soft landing that we're going through and we can start preparing for the next uh, pickup as um, monetary policy starts to ease and that's when we'd expect to sort of see investment um, starting to recover and subsequently uh, employment growth probably into 2025. Nikki, what do you think? Uh, well, I'm pleased to hear that interest rates are probably not going to be going up further <laughs> because, you know, all of those of us who have mortgages will be happy to hear that. Um, Gareth, there was something in there that I would wondered if you could explain, uh, a term that I hadn't come across before, which was under-employment, under-utilisation. Can you... Yeah, so, yeah, no, good, great question. So uh, under-utilisation is made up of people who are unemployed, uh, but also people who um, are working but maybe looking to work more hours. So, you know, it might be uh, I'm doing two shifts a week, but I'm, I'm looking to do uh, three or four or, or maybe work, get full-time work. And I, I'm looking to, uh, you know, that may be coming about because of I need more income to meet those sort of budgetary pressures that I'm under. Um, and so when you combine the, the proportion of people who are both unemployed but also underemployed, add those together, that underutilisation rate is pushed up to about um, just under 11% of people now. And again, that's at its highest level in almost three years. And what does that mean, actually? For um, I mean, look, it effectively means uh, if I'm in business, so I'm looking to um, increase my, well, not necessarily increase my headcount, but I'm needing sort of more hours out of people, then there are people potentially within my uh, existing workforce uh, that are, are willing to take on more hours. Uh, and so the sort of, I guess, in short, there's capacity in the labour market uh, across both um, unemployed people and, and underemployed people to actually sort of increase the, the output and, and the production across the economy. Hmm. Thanks. That's so succinct, Gareth. I'll just hand it back to Nick if he has anything more to ask you. Otherwise, we'll leave it right there for now and obviously keep watching this space. Leave it with the expert, I think. Yeah, no, that was good, Gareth. In fact, just to finish, do any of these numbers surprise you? Did you think that unemployment would be higher? Uh, we were picking it to be slightly higher, 4.1, so it's it's kind of we're not going to get too hung up on 0.1 of a percentage point. I guess, look, the, the biggest surprise for us was just the ongoing strength in labour costs. Now, the headline number is held up. Um, it's still going at 4.3%. The interesting thing is when you dig in underneath those numbers, we're seeing private sector uh, labour cost growth slowing, as you would expect as the economy slows, and where that pressure is still coming through is the public sector. Whether the Reserve Bank sort of reacts and thinks they should do too much about that, I'm not sure. It's, it's a function of collective uh, bargaining agreements that have come through in the second half of last year, um, pay equity deal for nurses as well, and a bit of catch-up in the public sector after that sort of wage freeze and pay freeze they had through COVID to help uh, you know, just try and um, prevent some of those costs increasing. But yeah, certainly that's probably the most surprising part for us is just how resilient some of those pay costs, uh, wage costs are in the, in the face of slowing uh, employment growth. Thank you very much, Gareth. It's Gareth Keenan from Infometrics. He's the chief forecaster. Well, we'll go to France now, just before we go to the headlines. Let's go to France in Paris, where they voted in favour of higher parking charges for SUVs with a view of cutting emissions and congestion as a result of those higher parking charges for the bigger vehicle. As a result, it will cost €18 an hour to park your SUV in Paris, which is the equivalent of 32 New Zealand dollars. The mayor in Paris has said other cities will follow. What do you think about that, Nikki? (laughs) I love it. I think it's awesome. I totally support this. I hate SUVs in general. I mean, sometimes you need one, like if you're on a farm or you're 
that backcountry station or something. But I think most of the time SUVs are not necessary and they are antisocial vehicles. They are selfish vehicles in a way. They're bad for everyone but the people that are inside them and they make for antisocial parking as well. So I reckon if you have to pay a bit more to park one, that's probably a good a good, good price deterrent. to pay. Yeah, it might stop. Might make people think about their car choice. Bring it in in Auckland. Bring it in around the country. What do you reckon, oh, yeah. Nick Leggett, <laughs> former mayor of Porirua? Uh I think no, actually. No. Um, because, Why not? Because you're picking on one group of people for their choices. What we do need to do is control traffic volumes into cities, and you do that at the you know, th- through policy settings like congestion charging. So if you think about so many of the so much of the parking in a city is in private parking during the day. So you're not actually touching, you know, a big chunk of people who park in a city because they're paying privately. It's much better to reduce the numbers coming into a city and you do that obviously by congestion charging, but also by better public transport and other transport options. So uh I think, you know, it's a it's something that um, you know, you're having a go at people for their life choices, but actually the choice to drive into the city is what we should be trying to influence, and you do that through you know, having a, a rule for everybody that they pay to do that. So one size fits all rather than the bigger, bigger vehicle pays more. Looking forward to your texts on this, 2101. What do you think? Should SUVs pay more to park in our cities here in New Zealand, follow Paris with their decision to charge extra, or emails the panel at rnz.co.nz. Yeah, look forward to your thoughts on that.